Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and we are coming to you today from the home of the On The Way podcast, it's fair to say, Peter Katz's office. We're back in the place where our probably first few years of episodes were all recorded. Uh, Sue Grimmett, you're here. Where, does it, it does feel a bit like being back home when we're here doing it one episode, doesn't does it? It does feel like being back home, and we've just gone out for a nice dinner, so we're all feeling really casual and relaxed. Yeah, it's quite lovely, actually, and Peter is here as well, obviously. Peter, thank you again for, as always, letting us use your office. It's a, my absolute joy and delight. Thank you. And we have been looking forward to this episode for some time um, with a, a guest you may have seen pop up at various events during her Australian tour. You might have seen her on social media, in the news, maybe even if you accidentally tuned into Piers Morgan's show one night <laughs> or two as well. Jane Ozan is the founder of the Ozan Foundation, Foundation, author and British evangelical uh, Anglican, and somebody probably, it's fair to say, who is a trailblazer in this uh, enormous global issue we are dealing with at the moment, which is whether or not the Christian tradition is going to catch up with <laughs> culture when it comes to acceptance and inclusion and absolute full-hearted embrace of the LGBTQ plus community or is going to keep dragging things backwards. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on your Brisbane leg of the trip. It's real ple- pleasure, Don. Thanks so much for having me. We are we're so excited. I did mention Piers Morgan a little bit provocatively there <laughs> off the did. top, yes. um, which might have people wondering, how what? have you ended up on Piers Morgan's show? Can you tell us a little bit about um, about who you are, what you do, and how you found yourself dealing with the, the Piers Morgans of the <laughs> world? Dear old Piers. Yes, <laughs> a difficult man. So I work with senior religious leaders around the world to try and tackle prejudice and discrimination on the grounds of sexuality and gender. So, you know, I, I met Pope Francis in 2019. I worked with the archbishops. I, I, I suppose I come from the Anglican faith. I was on something called the Archbishop's Council for a while. More recently, I'm, I'm known uh, for, for chairing and founding something called the UK uh, Ban Conversion Therapy Coalition. I've been a government advisor on LGBT issues. And I think perhaps increasingly, I've just become a spokesperson for the LGBT community, particularly on areas of faith, but on justice areas. And Piers, um, well, he was, you know, he likes stirring. He's got a bit of an anti-woke agenda. He didn't like the rewriting of A Christmas Carol um, just before Christmas and uh, wanted to tell me that I um, really should, you know, pack my bags and get, get away with anything to do with... Um, inclusion and I called him on it you know we had quite an interesting it's, it's up there if people go to my website janeozan.com they can they can watch it if they want to it, it was also with Anne Widdicombe who might not be a name for your listeners but she's quite a, a well-known conservative MP back home and um, having the two of them was probably more than <laughs> anybody could deal with but um you know, the problem is for, for Piers with his show, he really just wants to feed what I call red meat to the anti-woke agenda. And actually, it's about time somebody stood up to him and called him out on it, which is what I chose to do yeah. just before Christmas. Yeah. Well, as someone who briefly worked in the conservative talkback radio scene of Australia oh. as a producer in, when I was 18 and 19, I did see the particular art form of uh, <laughs> trading on outrage. I, I, I can remember some stories from those days of... Well, one particular day I went in and said that our, at my house the solar panels had caught fire 
and three of the announcers just wheeled their chairs back and said, we can do this. This is an attack on the climate change, all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting seeing their minds at work mm-hmm. going, how can we confect outrage mm-hmm. over this particular thing and how the liberals are taking the world away from us? Well, that's right. And, and they f- thrive on that, as you say. But for me, it was a great opportunity just to talk about God's love and the true meaning of Christian uh, Christmas. Yeah. And I kept coming back to that. And of course, that infuriated him. <laughs> but I... <laughs> um, but also, I wasn't going to stand for any nonsense because, at the end of the day, the people who get hurt are obviously the people who are the butt of his jokes, you know, the target of his hate. And actually, standing up for them uh, was really important. And I've had more positive um, comments from those who are actually opposed to me. A lot of the conservative Christians actually congratulated me on taking him to town. Yeah. So you can win respect both ways, but. Um, yeah, the guy the guy likes to be loved and so when you're actually, you know, challenging him, telling him he's in the wrong, that sits uncomfortably with him, but he did give me airtime. Mm. And the fascinating thing actually was the cameraman because uh, it was filmed in my in my in my lounge and uh he hadn't said much beforehand, but afterwards he was sitting there with his thumbs up, absolutely <laughs> grinning at me. And he said, "Well done." He said, "I'm a Christian too." And he said, "Nobody's ever stood up to peers like you've just done and he gave you hair time so um please can you do it again so it was nice to get that feedback yeah, yeah. that's that's, uh, that's outstanding and i suppose it does lead us into the conversation we're hoping to have today on the podcast which is uh, around this uh, thing that's been bubbling away for a few decades now um <laughs> and in different parts mm. of the world has had its peaks and its troughs in terms of the i guess the media attention it's received but it, it is related to um, the Christian tradition, the Christian institutions, and uh, their approaches, their very varying approaches to mm. human sexuality. Um, I wondered if this, if you might be happy as we move into this conversation to begin by sharing a little bit of your story on this particular front, because this is not something that you set out with a career plan to become right. the spokesperson for no. evangelical gay Christians. That's absolutely right. It's the last thing I... Uh, expected I'd be doing in my in my 50s I grew up as a, a, a pretty fervent evangelical I still am as, as I but a you know charismatic bible believing uh, woman who really wanted to do whatever it was I felt God was calling me to and originally that um, had me in international business I, I had quite a I suppose what many would see a high-flying career um and then I was invited onto something called the Archbishop's Council for the Church of England, which was a huge honour, honor, but it was an appointment to a group that oversaw the Church of England, a, a voluntary post, which I did by faith. But unbeknown to most, I had this terrible secret that I couldn't share with anyone because I knew it would um, put me on what I call the theological naughty step, the place which there would be no return. And that was, I kept falling in love with women. And I could not understand how God would create me, someone who was desperately keen to do whatever uh, God had for me, that wanted to do the right thing, how God would create me with a desire to love and be loved when that love was coming from what I perceived to be such an abominable source. I thought this was really wrong, sinful. And the weight of that crushed me. And I ended up in hospital with my body literally falling apart and, and, and closing down because of the stress and pain of it all and I came through that an extraordinary uh, revelation of God's love but I then chose willingly to go through about 10 years of um, conversion therapy or conversion mm-hmm. practices as we call it um, I really truly believe that if God 
wanted me uh, to love and be loved, then I had to be straight and that God would find the right healing for me. And I, I, because I was in quite a, a senior role, as I've explained evangelically, I, I um, knew a lot of people around the globe who I privately went to for prayer, um, had a lot of exorcism, a lot of deliverance ministry, but sadly it just didn't work. And the truth is that you constantly feel a failure. You, you believe that the problem must be yours, that you are someone who hasn't got enough faith or you're not being honest enough. And the problem always sits with you. And here was someone I was desperate to do whatever it was that God wanted for me, but I couldn't quite get to this point of healing. And eventually I believed that, well, I must be called to be single and celibate for life. But that too crushed me because I... You know, I think some people are called to be chaste. Some people are have the gift of celibacy, as we call it. But for those of us who don't, who want to create a unit where we are known and loved and, and accepted and, and can build a, a home which is full of love, it is crushing to be told that you have to be on your own. And that mm. second time I ended up in hospital. And uh, again, full-blown breakdown. and got to that terribly dark place of, of thinking that... There was either, you know, nowhere to go. I, I would have to, to take my life or I needed to find a way through. And I eventually did come out. Um, and then much to my surprise, found my God walking with me and, mm. and answering prayers and putting me alongside people and then calling me into this work of, of, of trying to help, I suppose, the church recognize a, the damage it's been doing and the safeguarding problems and the number of young lives and older lives have been absolutely torn apart as mine have been because of church teaching but also to show a god of love in a whole new way you know i think so much of this and we'll perhaps come on to this is about our understanding of the gospel of the good news of jesus christ about the yeah. love of god for all and how it is god's love for us that matters, not what we do or what we say. And it's that that I think the church is having a real problem trying to get its head around at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. We've just had a seminar this afternoon before dinner where you've, you've shared a bit more of your story. And mm -hmm. I thought one of the interesting things you mentioned there was um, perhaps the sense of dislocation that your situation has found you in the middle of. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things I thought when I read your blurb, Jane, was I haven't met many evangelical gay Christians. <laughs> that's that's something that generally when people uh, come out, they tend to leave that tradition and mm -hmm. um, often become, for I think probably very valid reasons, quite against that tradition and the pain it's caused them. And you touched on this when you spoke about how you feel like you've had three coming outs. That's right. I thought it might be worth asking you to share that <laughs> no, story. No, it's true, but it's how I feel. You know, I, I, I say it took me 40 years to come out. And at that point, it was a bit of a car crash. And I lost, sadly, most of my evangelical friends and family, mm -hmm. um, some of whom have, have been on a journey since, but the vast majority. And then I came out as Christian to my LGBT friends. <laughs> And I wasn't prepared for the reaction there. I lost most of my LGBT friends because they, they found it really hard to believe that this woman might still have a faith. And then I came out as evangelical to my Christian LGBT friends, and that was it. You know, I was, <laughs> I was definitely out there. But, and people say, why? why are you still an evangelical? You know, how do you define evangelical? And we can look at the different words of that. But it's my home. You know, that's the, the tradition I've been homed in. It's how I relate uh, in 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 my worship in my understanding it's how um yeah it's it's where my faith was formed and 
there are many evangelicals who would want to throw me out of that and not see me as that. We're pretty good at, you know, what I call hermet, hermetically sealing um, our, our understanding of Christianity so we throw anybody else out um, who we disagree with. But it's where my home is and it's how I understand God. So it's still who I am. I haven't changed. A few years ago, we uh, every every year for Pride Week, which in Brisbane is in September, we hold a talking circle. And uh, a couple of years ago, the talking circle was titled "Coming Out as Christian mm-hmm. to the LGBTIQ Community." And so everyone in the circle had a story of coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out that I had more stories about coming out to the LGBTIQ community as Christian than anyone else but uh, <laughs> and I'm straight but uh, <laughs> but it's a really difficult gig in because because of the amount of hurt that the Christian tradition has caused you one can understand the defensiveness and yet there are people of faith who want to belong across the communities mm. who find that they have your experience of just being ostracized mm. repeatedly um, and how how one then begins to knit a common humanity out of that is the challenge for well, us. Well, that's right. And if we believe in inclusion, if we believe in diversity, if we believe in accepting each other for who we are, we need to accept the whole of our identities. And for me, that's as a Christian evangelical woman. It might be a Muslim uh, gay man, you know, who, who obviously has... I, I work a lot with uh, those from other faiths. But one of the reasons I'm here in, in Australia, of course, is to speak at World Pride. And I'm thrilled that it's here in Australia we've got faith on the agenda and that we are looking at what it means to be a person of faith and a person who happens to be gay or bisexual or queer or, or transgender. And um, that doesn't negate the heart, you know, the pain we've been through. Um, I, certainly I, over in England, there's a long journey. I, I was appointed to the government's advisory panel a few years ago, um, primarily because of my work on conversion practices and trying to ban them. But I was really the first, I suppose, prominent person of faith from the LGBT community in that space and it took a long time to earn their respect and trust and to find new ways of talking about how we could bridge that gap because for too long the secular LGBT community and the faith LGBT community have been um, well hermetically sealed I'm going to use that phrase have been in very different places Mm. Um, and we need to help each other understand each other yeah and I guess the energy of this thing, it's the it's what seems to be running the show in most of the Christian divisions we see in, well, I certainly can say in the Western world, I would imagine globally, but especially we see it in the Western world at the moment. And I know in our Australian, in our Brisbane context, this has been a talking point, um, you know, as a non-clergy, I feel like I can probably talk <laughs> a bit more openly about that than perhaps mm. the other hosts of this podcast. But there's been a very hot topic in, in Brisbane over the last six or so months and in, in Australia as a whole. And I think the question that a lot of people have had, and it seems to be running parallel, it's not disconnected to, but it's running parallel to the questions about where is the church going? Will there be a church in 50 years? Mm-hmm. What is this whole thing growing into? A parallel to that is, is this hot topic of, should churches conduct same-sex weddings? Why is it that some portion of clergy are going this way, others are going the other way? And effectively, this has become over the last decade or two, um, but especially maybe since the plebiscite in Australia, the hot-button church issue 
in Australia. Absolutely. It's a divisive issue, isn't it? And yeah. it's also because it stands, I think, for so much more than just same-sex uh, weddings or uh, how we relate to LGBT people. It's There are, I think, two competing understandings of the gospel, of our understanding of God at stake. This is a proxy issue. And sadly, as always, it's a very small minority, um, marginalized community who've already been pretty broken and hurt uh, who are bearing the brunt of so much hate and of so much discussion and it's almost I feel you know we're the football that people talk about kicking the can down the road which is what we've been doing in England we've been kicking the can about same-sex marriage well the can is real people LGBT people's lives mm. and we're hurting and we're bruised and we're fed up <laughs> but it's because it represents so much more and I, I don't know I'm, I'm looking at two priests here I mean I don't know if that resonates but it, it is about two I think differing and almost competing versions of Christianity absolutely I think it is and I, and we've got to watch and all these we, you know Dom saying there have been hot hot topics of discussion here you know and it ends up for some people it's an ideological debate mm. you know and and we're talking about people and people's lives and we're talking about people of faith who are not experiencing this as a, as a way that the church is being loving to them and 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 somehow they they've been dehumanized by making it into that ideological debate and and yet the whole as you say too this is actually about a whole lot of deeper the way we what we think about god who we think god is how we approach scripture and we have talked about this of course on other podcasts and mm. trying to dig beneath the surface here um but i think what is interesting is is actually discerning what is happening? What it, where, where is the spirit moving at this mm. time? Because uh, there is, in, in the voices of LGBT plus people, we are actually, I'm sensing, that's, that's, that's the growth edge and that, that wake up and, and listen. Um, while we're off having, having ideological debates, there's, there's actually a move of the spirit through here. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, do you know, Sue, so it reminds me what you just said there of... Um, of, I think it was Martin Percy when he joined us uh, a number of years ago now on the podcast. Oh, great. And, um, you Martin's know, Martin, a great friend. Martin, yeah, no, yeah. we're both in Oxford. Yes, know, yeah. Just, I remember yeah. Martin saying that young people hadn't rejected the church because they'd stopped being interested in matters of justice and equality. They'd rejected the church because they were more interested than ever before and mm. didn't see the church as a place mm -hmm, for that. Mm -hmm. And when we speak about what God is doing here, I think it might have been him who made some sort of a comment along the lines of, maybe God is fed up and lost interest in the church and it's just the spirits decided I'll go do my work elsewhere. Well, yeah, I, th I think young people in particular or in a world that's used to advertising and marketing, they want authenticity. Mm. They recognize false dogma anywhere. What they need is integrity. Mm. They need authenticity. And they look at the church often and they see hypocrisy. They think yeah. you're preaching a message of love and yet you seem to judge. You're preaching a m message of, of justice, but you seem to be one of the most unjust, unjust yeah. sorry, yeah. Uh, groups around. And, but I believe that God is doing something bigger outside the church even. You know, I, I, was, mm. I was explaining earlier, but I, I think that I fortunately have had more opportunities to talk about my faith in the public square as a, a as a gay woman who happens to be Christian people are fascinated by that and they want to understand how have you kept your faith mm. given all that you've been through the fact you nearly died and that gives me a a platform to share about the love of God in a way that I think that sadly few few perhaps archbishops or bishops do but people respond to 
um, authenticity, integrity, and values that they can truly resonate with. I think the, um, uh, for me, the passion of the young and for their passion for justice and the like, for me, shows that the gospel has actually worked. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. after 2,000 years of the church pointing people to Jesus and what Jesus said, it's actually become so deeply enculturated that now, even if the church tries to resist it, the gospel is at work yes. out there. Yes, <laughs> really good. People, and, and we yeah. see that all the time. And yeah. whenever we, as the church, do something that resonates with the gospel, mm-hmm. we get feedback from people who say, it's good to see the church doing what the church should do. So in 2016, we declared the cathedral to be a sanctuary. And on day four, for, for refugees, on day four, there were 1,100 people standing in that wow. cathedral, and they were mostly young. That's amazing. And no, the feedback I got was, I've, I have no interest in being a Christian. This was the general feedback. I have no interest in being a Christian, but it's so good to see the church doing what the church should do. Mm. Well, and, and being who we should be. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about Jesus is that Jesus came and he didn't sort of bury himself in a church, did he? But he went out amongst the people People. and they were magnetically attracted to him because he was speaking life and love to them. And, you know, I did did a series um, a a couple of years ago on the the law of love versus the love of law. And I I like that alliteration. But I do wonder and and fear sometimes that some of our churches have become so legalistic and and in love with law as opposed to this life-giving love. And it's the love that people respond to, right? And, I mean, it's so simple. It really is that simple. But God's love, I mean, that's why my book is called Just Love, because it is about God's unconditional, amazing, you know, transforming, life-giving love. I was talking to someone earlier, you know, for me, um, she's just fallen in love. And you can see she's just absolutely blooming with it. You know, she's fully alive. You can't hide it, even if you need to, because perhaps you're in um, love with someone that you can't tell anybody about. But you just, you know, you just thrive with it, don't you? Love is absolutely transformational. And it was that love that I experienced and, and, and people saw in me that really challenged my um, family, to be honest, and some of my closest friends, who then challenged them, and they became affirming because they could see the fruit in my life, and it's that fruit that I believe Jesus calls us to look mm, at. Absolutely, I always think it's the final, the final word to say by their fruit. Mm, You'll know them. Absolutely. Is this leading us to um, love each other more, or is it leading us into a fuller life? Is it leading us towards greater freedom, or is it taking us to greater division? Is it taking us to greater, um, you know, kind of judgment? Well, and the lives that are lost. I mean, for me, this whole thing, some people say it's about same-sex marriage and relationship. I'm saying it's about actually the safeguarding of LGBT lives. You know, what the the, the harm that we're doing Mm. by preaching a message that um, sadly discriminates, but more importantly tells people that they are sinful, unacceptable, and their love is ungodly. That crushes a soul. It takes young people to a place where we know they are self-harming they're attempting suicide they sadly even take their lives and you know all the statistics are there the medical professions uh, will state this the un states this certainly in the uk we now have many research studies on this the facts are clear for all to see and yet for some reason the church doesn't want to own up to the harm that it's doing but if we could look at the bad fruit 
and and take some responsibility and weep over the lives that we have absolutely traumatized that is what i'm trying to stop and um i i to me it's one of the greatest evils that we don't recognize stop or speak into the harm that we are creating i never want another young person to go through the trauma i went through that nearly killed me and that's what fuels me to keep going but it's time people felt angry mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and didn't just see this as a mar- you know matter of talking about marriage or not. This is something much deeper. Mm. And uh, yeah, I've worked in schools before, and uh, just interesting thinking about the gospel taking hold in culture. And in Christian schools, you know, kids are hearing scripture, they're hearing teaching all the time about the faith. And I've seen you know bunches of teenagers be the ones to to get angry like you right. say to be yep. to actually to recognize that when they see the bullying at work and play and to make that connection with some of the teaching of the church mm-hmm. and they're getting really angry and i would often think that is the gospel at work you know that they they're the ones who are actually being the truth speakers and being the prophets mm-hmm. um and and that the holding the line and the law of what people have perceived um christian teaching the narrow view of what they perceive christian teaching to be you know the, the kids were the ones calling it out mm-hmm. and they were calling it out because they could see how unjust and wrong wrong it was mm. yeah well the prophets of our time mm-hmm. and um thank god they do mm-hmm. see it you know, it reminds me, I was in a, a church some years ago now and the youth group was trying to get more numbers along. And I remember sitting in a, I timed it, a 48-minute meeting about what font choice they should use on the brochures for the youth group. And I remembered thinking their belief is the reason the numbers aren't high, the reason this message isn't captivating is because of the font. <laughs> As if the reason Jesus got thousands to the Sermon on the, on the Mount is because he got a good font. Jesus famously used Garamond for the Seven on the Found flyers, and that's what got everyone there. That's the font found in the King James Version. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Which is authorised by Jesus. Yes. But, but there was this, this thing that drove me nuts back then. I, I couldn't put my finger on it back then. But, but I feel it feels a bit clearer to me now. I think it's a lot of what we're talking about here, is that the reason this message was so compelling was because it was no holds barred, no reservations, no qualms, just complete, radical, game-changing, life-saving love mm. for everybody and nobody left out. It wasn't because they had a good flyer or played a good game for the first hour or because everyone likes pizza. Mm-hmm. It was because it was changing the whole system. Mm. And and I, I feel like that vitality mm-hmm. is something that has been lost mm. in the oh, tradition. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and well, I mean, I, I know that's a lot of your work is what happened to that vitality? What happened to it? I don't know if we got tired and jaded. I, I, do you mean in the in the church as yeah, a whole? Yeah. I, I think we've got so bogged down. We've lost sight of the bigger picture. And you have to go to a stream that energizes you. We were talking, you know, Richard Raw for me is someone who really energizes me. Being amongst young people who have passion to see a world change energizes me. Mm. Knowing the love of God every day energizes me. And I... I don't know. I think maybe in the West we have it too easy in some ways. Maybe we haven't, you know, I I, I, hate, I I do live most of the time by faith. What does that mean? I don't have a, you know, a firm income coming in. And, and I'm, I suppose I'm living a little bit on the edge. I don't recommend it to meet people. It's hell. But it means that I have to live, I suppose, on, on my toes a lot of the time. And I think sometimes we become too comfortable. Maybe we've got it too good. Maybe... I don't know, maybe we've forgotten that what freedom 
um, price we've we've paid for freedom, you know, over the years. I I, I don't know. We need waking up, mm. and and that's what young people. I I agree with you, Sue. I think they feel, um, especially when it comes to climate, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, really passionate about. And I think we have to talk I- in our faith about how God is creator God and and calls us to be stewards of an earth rather than just lords of it. We've got to find a new way of of, of engaging that. Yeah, I mean, and here we are worried about what's going on in people's bedrooms when the planet's burning up, you know, and, yeah. and well, young true. people look at this and go, what what actually matters? And surely if we get on with loving one another, enabling each other to be our best selves and acknowledging human desire and not acknowledging human need to just love and be loved and let that be there and then maybe we could work together work on together. the things that really matter like but the, cl- like the planet. Do you know what? I'm going to be slightly provocative here. I don't think we talk enough about sex and desire and sexuality as a church. We either put it in the too difficult or too awkward box mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so the message that young people get is either don't go there, don't do it mm-hmm. uh, but we don't talk enough about what's good sex, what's good relationships, what's good, you know, where's the right place for desire mm. it's not all you know and if we could and maybe we need to learn from the young people because i think actually we've got <laughs> yes. i know we're using this phrase young people sorry guys because um but I'm, I'm putting you all in one box but i think you can tell us an awful lot more but we need to we are fully human and god i think has got so much more he wants to show us about what love and intimacy and and sex um mm. talks about and I say that as a woman who's single in my 50s and who's still out there trying to find the right woman. So, um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and I suppose this leads us into what is now the broader global conversation happening in the church, which is around, uh, if we look at the Church of England and the Anglican sort of tradition around this idea of the communion, the Anglican communion and mm-hmm. how we find a way forward together. And every denomination, every expression has some version of this going on inside of it which is the tension between those who feel quite compelled by this message of, of radical love and inclusivity and who kind of think there's no question about <laughs> celebrating um, same-sex relationships and people on you know who are of all sorts of spectrum of diversity of gender and, and sexuality and those who feel like the main job of this thing is to police the right way things should be done and shouldn't be done. And, and I know that one of the popular voices that has won out in recent years has been this idea of unity that what we need to do is is come together and find room that everyone can walk this path together. Now, this, at first glance, does sound... It, it, you can it's see the appeal initially. Yeah, but but you quite, you're quite critical of the idea of unity at all costs. It's a golden calf. Yeah, it, for me, it's a golden calf. It's a false idol that we've put unity up there on, you know, on the altar. And the people who are getting sacrificed because of it are the LGBT community. I... I don't believe that um, Jesus called us to to try and be united at all, you know, at the cost of people's lives. And the truth is we're not united. You know, the church has been split for decades, both at a global level, but also at a local level. People have been leaving in their droves. And we just need to be honest about that. Um, I do think there is a way perhaps of recognizing the integrity of of different people's views you know in England I don't know what it's like over here but a recent survey showed that 56% of Anglicans in England want same-sex marriage in their churches 32% I think it is or it could be 36 but you know about a third um, don't want it fine but both groups exist and actually the bigger group are those who do so to call them unchristian to give them no room for that expression of their faith I think is completely Mm -hmm. dishonoring 
and and we we have to i don't know find a way of 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 recognizing the truth about the fact there's one group who thinks the other group is apostate and going to hell and then those of us who are in that group think that the other group are causing severe safeguarding problems and and causing people to take their lives you know this is really high stakes stuff but somehow we have to be able to see the Christ in each other and believe there must be a way forward. I think that that's the key because th- sometimes I think we get confused between unity and thinking um, and, and we that have to agree. Yes, with that each we other. have to agree with each other, mm. and that it's actually or that those people who are not one of us are therefore condemned. We have the same problem, you know, in England with the House of Bishops, where they're saying, "Well, they don't all agree." Well, no, you're not going to agree, but can you agree to disagree and at least make space for each other? That's what we did at the Lambeth Conference or rather what Archbishop Justin did at Lab of Conference last summer, where he recognised there was a plurality of views. There are some who still abide by what we call Lambeth um, 1.10 from 1998, which says that someone like myself is disordered. But there are others, you know, a growing number, and it always tends to be, the change tends to be in one direction, that believe in all biblical integrity through scripture, they've done their homework, that it is possible to marry two people of the same sex. And both views exist in the communion. Um, now, we haven't quite got as far as recognising that both views exist in the Church of England. We're getting there. Um, I don't know, you know, in Australia, you in Brisbane recognise that that exists. Sydney, obviously, in a different place. But um, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The change does always tend to be in one direction. And that's, dare I say, why the Conservatives are so concerned, because they can see the way the tide is moving. Well, and, and I think something we saw really interestingly here in Australia around the plebiscite, I'm racking my brain, so I think it was when you and I were with Jeff Sparrow at, at the Byron Writers Festival that he might have spoken about this, about it being the most remarkable act of direct political action in recent history in Australia, because the numbers on the plebiscite a year beforehand were nowhere near as overwhelmingly in favour as they ended up being for the yes. Wow. But the theory is that because of the long run up we had, Mm-hmm. people were talking to their neighbours, their uncles, their aunties, their colleagues, their friends, and talking about why this matters to them, talking yeah. about their story, telling the story of the friend at school who struggled with this, mm-hmm. the colleague, whatever it might be, and that actually sharing personal experience was what shifted people on this mm-hmm. particular matter. Well, that's right, and we shouldn't be so surprised. As an evangelical, sharing my testimony is part of my bread and butter, you know? <laughs> and, and it's pretty biblical. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the power of their testimony and it's how it touches us personally you're quite right that encounter that personal story you know in ireland uh, which had a similar vote uh, a few years ago very catholic country they weren't ex- one you know they weren't expecting it to go through but a dear friend of mine a very well-known uh, broadcaster she was a, a t- television um uh, journalist um catholic single but came out just ahead of the vote and said how much it had, you know, her life had been um, difficult because she knew she was gay, but she didn't know she could come out. And she just shared her story. And the vote, you know, I think it was 80%, 20%, because people saw people they re- respected and admired and understood that this meant something to them. And, you know, but from a biblical point of view too, and I think maybe we, 
if I don't know what you call it, as progressive. You know, there is a very strong biblical case. I've gone around the country in England making it, but I don't think anybody ever wins the argument by having what I call a biblical sword fight. No. You know, when you sit there trading no. um, uh, verses against each other, that to me is really unhelpful. I can do it, mm -hmm. but it doesn't win anybody. It just makes people feel some conservatives better. But I think what we can do is look at how we approach scripture. Uh, how do we use scripture? What is scripture for? And scripture for me is about being a light that shines and illuminates Jesus, helps me understand who Jesus is, the kingdom of God, how to live my life in a holy way. It's not meant to be a frankly a, a book to bash people with which is sadly how far too often it's been seen as a weapon it is supposed to be a light mm. and um and a guidebook so, so if we look at the division then that we find ourselves in um as you've said the communion is already split it's mm. sort of a it is. it's a nice idea to pretend it isn't um but but if we're if we deal with reality and I think this is something you often talk about, Peter, is is the necessity to deal with things as they actually are, not as we might like them to be or think they are. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous have known this for years, that fixing any problem begins with admitting there the is honesty. one. The exactly. honesty. Exactly. Yeah, so if we're actually honest and say mm. this is where things sit today, um, then the question, I guess, evolves, why do they sit that way? And, and is there anything that can be done with it? And this is where we're moving into a part of the conversation that um, perhaps people would not have expected to come up as a thread in this conversation. But when you were speaking about it this afternoon, I thought that, uh, you know, and Sue and I were saying this over dinner, that is absolutely a key player in this game and it needs to be named, honestly named, and that is money. Oh, money. The yes. role that money plays. And people absolutely. might think we're, we're talking about same-sex marriage, we're talking about the mm. church. What role does money have in any of this? Mm. Um, so if someone said that to you, Jane, what would you, your response well, be? Well, money is power, isn't it? And so much particularly in the global Anglican communion, comes down to money, the need for resourcing, a need for money. And, you know, who, where do you get those funds from? When you've got villages to feed, when you've got children and orphans, when you've got the need for education, you will go where people will willingly fund you. After Lambeth uh, Conference last summer, I got inundated by bishops and archbishops who I'd met there asking me for money. And I suddenly realized, wow, if I had access to millions, I could probably get, you know, a progressive view around <laughs> the country. But there's, you know, and, and similarly in, in, in the West, in, in diocese, so much of the fear about unity is about, well, are we going to lose the funding from those churches that pay our bills and pay? And it, I, I'm someone who cho chose years ago um, not to allow money, this sounds terribly grand, I know, but not to allow money to r rule and r uh, run my life. I, I stepped off the career ladder and into a world where I had to trust that God would somehow provide for me. It was a scary thing. I, I don't recommend it to people unless you know that's what God's calling you to. But I did not want the power of money over my life. And so I'm very sensitive, I suppose, to seeing it when it's a power in other people's lives or other organizations' lives. And I do see it work both in the communion and within the Church of England. I, I presume it probably is a factor here in Australia too. With money comes power. And Jesus was very clear on this, wasn't he? You can't serve mammon and God. And the power of money is something that I think we are so, you know, we don't hear lots of people talking about um <laughs> the fact we should all be giving away our money and sort of serving the poor you know it's it's that unspoken rule that we're allowed to have a capitalist culture in our church 
You know, it's very uncomfortable. People start squirming when we talk about money. But it has a huge hold over us. And you know, I, I did pick it up when you were speaking about it because I thought, gosh, we haven't actually spoken about this at all on the podcast. Mm. And yet it's playing this huge role. And we're sitting in a country where in the marriage plebiscite, Sydney Anglicans gave a million dollars. A million dollars, to the my no campaign. goodness. So, you know, if, and here we are. And that you know, backfired, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, did. people were sickened <laughs> by it. <laughs> yeah. But, but in, it does show the pattern, though, that we're tra- that of actually using money to gain influence, using money to, to gain a bit of a monopoly in mm. certain districts and areas. And this is happening in the church too. And I think we are being very naive if we're not also open to this part of the conversation. Absolutely. Well, we have this belief, dare I say, often unspoken, that God blesses people with a lot of money if they're they're right. That's the the theology. And and, and I I hear that argument being mm -hmm. used by the Diocese of Sydney. Well, we we have been blessed with this money. With money. It's fruit. Therefore... and so, you know, the Diocese of Sydney, um, the, the Diocese of Bathurst went broke, so the Diocese of Sydney bailed them out. Right. And one of the conditions was that Sydney would have the say over who the bishop was, oh, and goodness. that's happening. So they there's bought another, him. And there's another diocese that that's mm. happening now. And um, so money speaks. Money, money speaks. Yes. You know, I so I, I come from Oxford. Now, I don't know, many of your listeners might not have been to Oxford, but you might have a view of it being that sort of, you know, university town. It's seen as very rich. And I live in one of the poorest parts in Oxford. We, In fact, we're one of the poorest postcodes in the country. We've got a huge high level of single mums and unemployed. Well, in fact, to be on benefits is seen as quite good in, in our area. So a lot of, lot of real raw poverty and our church when i i sort of had to leave the large evangelical church i was part of and i eventually after years started going to the local church which didn't have a toilet didn't have any running water in fact one of the first things i thought of was i was going to reach out to nigeria to ask if they would like to pay for a toilet in our church in oxford can you imagine they they sort of love the idea okay so and here we were in one of the richest diocese in the country one of the poorest churches and I was livid that we weren't giving to the people of Littlemore and I constantly got met with well Jane you know if God's with you he will bless you and I said the thing you don't get it do you you know I'm probably the only person in, in in the church who can use a computer you know hardly anybody's got an education we but God is really at work here. Yeah. These guys accepted me and loved me back to life more than anybody else has ever done. But we just don't have the finance. And that's why we need you to, to give sacrificially to support us. But we just, as a diocese, we didn't have that mentality. And I learned so much from my parish, but also about the power of money right. to distort and, and, mm. and um, yeah, buy favor. But also this false teaching that we have, mm. and um, in fact, I, I, I actually led a private members motion in our diocesan synod about asking um, for an audit on the number of other parishes who were just like us. And it turned out there were hundreds of other parishes in the diocese who had no running water and no toilets. You try doing mission if you've got no toilet, because yeah. no mother wants to bring a kid. Yeah. You know, it's pretty basic stuff. We didn't have electricity in hundreds of them either. And so we've now started to have to look at uh, the needs of, um, I, I won't take you off, but money was this huge, unspoken, unrecognized, and yet quite twisted, I think, um, thing that, that certain people believe that only 
the ones with money must have God's blessing. It's so wrong, so wrong. Of course, advantage compounds, and but so does disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know, when we're when we're thinking about how we are being as church, and this comes into this is why I actually love having this conversation in the midst of us talking about a conversation around sexuality, mm-hmm. because it all interconnects, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. We are we are whole human beings living a whole life. Um, and, and so we, we need to actually think about how does advantage play a part in this? How does the, who's got the strongest voices, the majority voices and all of those things mm. are part of how we're, how we're living together? Um, and, and I think a keen eye to actually um, what is influencing the way we make decisions and hold the status quo in the church. Yeah, and, and there's also, it, it just came to mind then, a story of, um, a pastor at a more evangelical Pentecostal church I met at a conference some years ago who was sharing a story candidly with me over a glass of wine at the end of this thing. And I, because I, as I tend to do, brought up the big topic issue. I said, well, what are you guys doing on sexuality? Where are you at that? And he said, oh, it's a nightmare. I'm really in favor of same-sex marriage. But he said, I, I hinted even a, a, a slight nudge in that direction in a sermon and he said, I had a number of my congregation who give a lot of money and keep the thing going essentially indicate to me, if this is the way we're going, you've lost us. And he realized if I get down, down, down that path, I'm going to lose the church and the church is doing a lot of good work. And so, But he's not going to lose the church. He's going to lose <laughs> no. the funding of those few people. And doesn't he believe that God might bring some others yeah. in? You know, seriously, that's what I mean about, yeah. you know, the, the God of mammon. But the fear, I mean, that's the problem that our bishops and archbishops have, is if they go soft on sexuality, to coin their phrase, they're going to lose the funding. Our our understanding of God has to be bigger. To do the right thing, to do the godly thing, to do the thing that stands up for the marginalized and the poor and the the people who are, you know, hurting the most, God will reward. Mm. And if it's, you know, I, I was talking earlier about a large evangelical church um, in, in England uh, where sadly um, a teenager took their lives because they thought they couldn't be gay um, and godly. And in fact, uh, her mother is my treasurer. So I, I've got quite a strong link with that church. And they decided they needed to look at what their teaching had been and they become an inclusive evangelical church. And yes, they lost a few people. But they have grown phenomenally since because they have become the beacon of inclusivity. They've become known as the safe space where those who are disabled, those who um, from all sorts of different backgrounds, the refugees all know that they can come and be welcomed. Mm. And, you know, they found it quite overwhelming. But God is so much bigger. And uh, I... I um, I mean, it's easy. People say it's easy for you to say, but I think I'm living it. You know, I'm trusting God for it. Yeah. I, I do know, um, and I have a lot of privilege. I'm a you know educated white middle class woman, but I'm, I'm I'm living on the edge a bit. But that platform I have to be able to speak means that I've I've chosen to go for it. And I think we have to wake each other up and challenge each other to believe that God is bigger. Mm. I remember somebody <laughs> saying to me some years ago that. A true life of faith is about finding the right hills to die on. Yep. That's the, well, that's true. And we should only, we've got to follow our calling. You know, yeah. I, this is an area that I've, I suppose I've felt called to. You're right. Which hill, um, 
Well, the, yeah. and sorry, the, I, I don't mean to use that too flippantly. I, I, to extrapolate in my job at, at the school I work at, um, early on I made it quite clear that this was an issue that I was going to be quite vocal on because I didn't want our young people to think that maybe the chaplaincy and the faith team right. even just tolerate their love. I want, you know, if one of my young girls, you know, in grade 10, 11 and 12 came up to me and said, oh, Mr. Fay, I've, I've fallen in love with, uh, meet my girlfriend. I don't want them to think I tolerate that. I want them to think I celebrate Celebrate that. it. I hate the word tolerate, yes. don't you? I heard yes. it on, on the news recently. We yes. don't want tolerance. No. I mean, that just smacks of disapproval. Yes. It's it? celebration mm. and and mm. joy and love. No, absolutely. And and walking alongside, you know, I the world's got enough judgment in it. Oh, you know, yeah. and tolerance just stinks of, of judgment. Um, sorry. Well, I was going to say, my, my point with that situation was that, yeah, if, mm. if any heterosexual student comes up and says, I've fallen in love, the instinctive response is grin and say, tell me about them and yeah, whatever. who are they? Exactly, all that, all that sort of stuff. And so at that exact time, I knew somebody who had been sacked from a school because they had been, they'd taken too much of a strong stance on the uniform policy. Mm. And I heard this whole story about the, the, the staff dress code. Mm-hmm. They were just not going to conform. And I thought, I'm not dying on that no. hill, but this is a hill. If I get fired for this, yeah. I'll walk out with my box of belongings and I'll go, good hill to die on. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, you know you're impacting people's lives mm. and particularly young people's lives. And there's nothing more precious, I think, than allowing a young person at the start of their journey into love um, to feel that their love is something beautiful and to be treasured rather than mm. something to be ashamed of and feel guilty about, which is how I felt. Mm. And, you know, that that will scar you for life if you set them on the wrong trajectory. Um, you know, God is love. And where there is love, we must learn how to accept and celebrate it. And though that does not mean that we have a... A, a pass to to any you know i then get told well what about incest and what about pedophilia and I'm like, that isn't love that's about mm, power. That's power and if Always you don't power. know the difference between that then boy yeah. you need a bit of help you know mm. um and that's what i mean about is teaching a lot more about yeah. sex and love and desire there you know of course there are limits but we have to look at the nature of power yeah, um, absolutely. And then if we actually did look seriously at the ch- uh, as the church at the nature of power in relationships, yeah. then we would be doing a lot to help people stuck in relationships of domestic violence uh, and abuse, which we have not done as a church. No. We haven't spelled out and helped well, people fact, understand. We've fueled it, haven't we? we sadly. It. I mean, yes. sadly, some of our really, I think, unhelpful teaching on headship and, and power yeah. and women has not treated the parties in love as equals. And it's been... Um, well, we've seen the horrific event uh, results, as I understand you, you've mm. done research mm. to show that, sadly, within Anglic- mm. Anglicanism, there's, a, mm. there's even more domestic mm. violence. Yep. And that's because people are trapped. They have this rule-based mm-hmm. approach to mm-hmm. divorce. Mm-hmm. They've got nowhere to go with their problems. And if people are listening to this, they're entrapped, they, you know, reach out to friends because they will often know the truth but aren't able to talk to you about it. Yeah. But they want to help and love you through that and support you into something that's far more life-giving mm. yeah absolutely it, you know it's interesting having this conversation about money and about power it also crosses my mind and and i imagine you three would know a lot more than me on this but how much when we talk about splitting the communion and whatever that this also comes down to who owns what property and who's <laughs> going to get the money from that sale and who owns this building if half of us go this way and half go the other way oh. that, that actually there are so many hurdles and obstacles standing in the way 
of a community of people, of, of believers, of followers of this tradition, actually doing, asking and then doing what is the most loving thing? Mm. So in England, uh, it's buildings, but it's also pensions. Um, and that's more personal, you know, whether your pension is tied up and whether you'll get your pension if you leave. Property, people think, oh, we can move into the local school or whatever. But um, yeah, it, it comes down to very basic things doesn't it and um i i well i don't want anybody to leave um necessarily but i more importantly i don't want anybody to be hurt and if oh. that means that we have to draw some lines that's where i would draw them um i don't know if hmm. is it i mean i get you know there's been a lot of learnings from um the uh, episcopal church of the united states and what happened there when you know some of the acna churches left and they had a lot of problems litigation lawsuits over the buildings but i think there could have been an easier way of mm. sorting all that out if i'm honest um i think they just have to be grown up it felt a little bit like children's squabbles in the playground because they were still really fighting fighting over others issues of who's right and who's mm. godly and mm. who's not mm. but if they could look out for the most vulnerable and uh, as a priority i think they would have approached things slightly differently mm-hmm. So I suppose that that leads us then to the the big question, which is where's this whole thing going? (laughs) If we're in a situation where many young people um, not only have rejected, but these days maybe haven't even considered um, the the Christian faith as Mm -hmm. as a way to live out their passion for justice and the gospel, which is a funny thing to say, but maybe if they have actually caught the gospel and they don't see it in the church, they go, well, I'm not going to go there. And then within the people who are in the church, including those who hold it so dearly and who it is such a meaningful um, part of their lives, within there, that there's this enormous split that we're trying to pretend isn't there and look the other way at times. And So ungodly, isn't it? It's yeah. such a mess as you put it like that. Well, I think there are various things happening. So I think within, dare I say within the, I'm going to use the term evangelical very loosely, but the conservative church, I think there's a big almost civil war coming between the younger generation who have perhaps been very compliant and very silent about what, you know, versus a leadership who've been very dogmatic. And as that younger generation become more vocal and more senior, they they are in a different place. Not all of them, but many of them are in a different place mm. of a leadership. And that's going to become more and more uh, pr- pronounced. And so when the leadership might say we want to leave, they'll be, they might be quite surprised that not many people want to leave with them. And I I just think that that is something that we're going to see come to a head in the next few years. But the bigger issue, I I have to be honest, I I look into the future and I say, do I really see an institutional church that the whole nation is wanting to engage with in 30, 40 years time? And, um, you know, and push back. But I just don't see it. I I see... um, I see a real hunger and thirst for spirituality. I see people wanting to re- to respond to what they see as authenticity and integrity. And I think that there will be more more, more individuals in the public s- square who are able to talk about their faith like Jesus did in, in the public space. And people hungry to, to learn more from them, but not necessarily worshipping in institutions in the way that we've seen it in the past. So you know, don't equate being a Christian with going to church is, I suppose, what I'm trying to say now. And I think that the whole uh, beauty of social media, of, of, of Twitter and 
TikTok and so you know Facebook and um, email and it's that people are getting fed and finding community in in very different ways. Now I'm not willing people away from church. I just I just see God raising people up in whole different ways. I, I mean I don't know what you two you're yeah, both ordained yeah, so I, you may see this very differently. Yeah, I guess I, I, the only the pushback place I have and I agree with you. I think we are seeing the spirit move. In, in different ways and in different forms. We've got not just uh, global connections through social media, but we've also um, just finding new ways to um, be in small groups and in, I mean, that's always been part of the church. You know, the, mm. the church the mm. spirit has always worked through but small groups. But that's how it people. started, wasn't that's it? Right. Is in homes yeah. with people meeting, just being together. The, the part I'd push back on, though, I guess every church group that I've been a part of that, um, says we don't we're not part of the organizational structure we we're sort of against institutional church we're just a small body of Christians meeting together in every single one of those situations an alpha male has stepped up and taken mm-hmm. command and then there's all kinds of little power abuses because they're not actually transparent so I'm actually a person mm-hmm. who's found a wonderfully safe and um, life-giving haven in the Anglican church because the power is transparent and because you can call it out and you can say hey um, you know I don't like the way that's being done and we, let's talk about it um, and for women particularly I think uh, the institution can certainly work and has worked against women but the institution can also do the opposite the institution can also protect and care mm-hmm. so I, I would see a mixed economy in the future of both mm. how small house churches the spirit moving in ways across the globe that we haven't connected in the past but also a space for an institution that protects the most vulnerable empowers the most vulnerable and has a really clear understanding of power and and a transparent mm. um <coughs> approach to where mm. power lies yeah i think that's right and we're, we're seeing it unfold at the moment we have in our diocese we have parishes that have lost the plot and are just disappearing because um, they're not prepared to take any risks and then we have um, parishes that are responding and growing and it is a mixed economy Mm. Um, so you know when someone says to me is the church growing or declining in the diocese of brisbane i say it's doing both Mm. Um, and i think it's about whether you really are able to embrace what the call is um, that does lead and it's not about just numerical growth either but yeah there is that sense of energy that comes from being having a sense of purpose and being um, driven in the right sort of way Um, driven is a complex word but um, there is a there is a sense of being driven when you catch Mm. the fire Mm. and um, and and the idea of um, spheres of influence as well. So it's not just about who comes, but who actually associates with and owns. And because hmm. you know, you know it, even big established churches have you know a Facebook uh, footprint that is way bigger than the number of people who come. Actually so there's pretend, there's yeah. there's something happening there that. People have chosen to like it and follow it, and I suppose it is where people feel at home and yeah. where they belong. And I suppose what I, w- I was hinting at is that I, I just 
don't think that necessarily has no. to be in a building and no, you're no, agreeing no. Yeah, i mean yeah. listeners to this podcast mm. probably feel they belong mm-hmm. to this group maybe yes but um and you're right to point out power structures sue and how that can work both for and against i, I agree with that i suppose what the ultimate thing i'm trying to say is god always has a plan yeah and i don't think that christianity is going to die out at all i think god is no. always going to find a you know exciting new ways of 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 talking about God's love for all of us. Yeah. It just, it, the church doesn't necessarily have a golden ticket that says it will always be here. No, no, no. And, no, and, and I, no. I know you'd agree yeah. with that too. It's my my um, dear friend Richard Holloway said, yeah. you know, he, he loves the church and he hates the church. <laughs> and he loves the church because it keeps on telling the stories of Jesus, even if it doesn't follow them. And he says, you yeah, know, if we didn't have the church, the Bible would not be the most produced document in the world Mm. said so he loves the church because it keeps the bible stories out there and the stories of jesus and he hates the church because of the way it doesn't listen to the very stories that it tells but it's preaching Mm -hmm. that's right Mm -hmm. yeah and so when that gets it right when we hear because we all are always in need of hearing the gospel afresh and if we think that we're preaching the gospel We've missed the point that the gospel is actually challenging That's us. That's right. We actually have to hear the gospel. And I think it's time for a new reformation. I was talking earlier, you know, yeah. we had from the time of the, the Protestant um, uh, Reformation through to Methodism was about 300 years, and it's about 300 years since yeah. Methodists started to, to now. I, I, I think it's, we need to challenge what it is that um, uh, who we are as church and what we mm. believe uh, in terms of salvation and God. And something exciting is happening. Yeah. But, it, yeah, I just don't want to see too many people get hurt in the yeah. process. I'm not sure if this is coming through in the audio, but there seems to have been for the last few minutes some sort of celebratory some bells. wedding bells. Yeah. Yeah, the bells are on. Yes. It's very, very timely. It yeah. does feel very... I thought you'd organise this conference. <laughs> Thank you. I hope they're coming through at least a little bit for those <laughs> listening, but it does feel an appropriate um, celebratory sense to end this. And, and I do think I, I couldn't agree more, more with what you're saying there, Jane. It's funny. I see this working at, with high schoolers. And I've said this before on the podcast, but our high school is, a, I think, 98% roughly uh, are not at all religious, totally secular. Mm. Um, they have been raised not at all religious. They've been raised in a culture which absolutely promotes individualism, absolutely co- promotes being competitive and mm-hmm. excellence and achievement. And yet you can't keep this care for the common good for the environment, you can't keep it out. It is like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And so to me, whenever I'm in these conversations where people say the whole thing's gone to hell in a handbasket, it's all over. I think go and spend time with some of these young people who who won't use any of this language. But geez, when they'll talk about their friend who has been oppressed in some way, or when they'll talk about the planet, or when they'll talk about this cause, the gospel's more Mm. alive than ever in so many ways. Well, they have a thirst for righteousness, don't they? And a thirst for justice. Now, the truth is, obviously, you know, I have a lot of secular friends, and that is, that's not necessarily just Christian values, but we can speak into that. The problem is we don't have the right in many people's um, mm. uh, lives to be able to speak because they think that we have been so full of, um, I was going to swear there, <laughs> full, of, <laughs> full of nonsense or hypocrisy. And earning that trust again and earning the ability to speak um is is what so many of us are trying to do and i i thank god quite literally for the ministry of dean peter and mm. and sue and and others here in brisbane because i think you've got some real beacons of hope and uh, it's been really encouraging to see 
and and I love from what you've shared today and what you've mentioned here on the podcast the idea that God's love does not bear bad fruit. That's right. That if if yeah. we use that as a as a metric, so you talk about the life test often and, and things like this. If mm. it doesn't bear bad fruit, this this loving message mm. should be seen by its fruits, and its Absolutely. fruits are good fruits. And you and you can't put a lid on them either. You know, if you're in love, everybody knows about it, and mm. um, you know, and that's also should be about if you're in love with God, everybody should know about it. It should shine through you, and it's those magnetic, charismatic figures that I believe you know mm. that God is raising up right now. Well, Jane, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Your work is transformative in so many ways. And I know it must come with some degree of personal cost, if, if even just the exhaustion, but I'm sure there's more <laughs> personal cost as well. So thank you so thank much you. for all you have done I've and really are doing. I really enjoyed it. Um, for people who want to stay across what you're doing, mm-hmm. maybe um, uh, support so, you financially, maybe watch you argue with Piers Morgan, <laughs> whatever it might be, what's the best yeah, way to, so, um, to find you? I've got various webs. Ozan, O-Z-A-N-N-E dot foundation is my website. Yep. Or Jane Ozan, if you just pop it into Google, you'll find the janeozan.com website and ways of contacting me. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I've been blessed with this pretty unusual usual name O-Z-A-N-N-E and my Jane has got a Y in it why has Jane got a Y in her name when other people are just plain Jane (laughs) either way you should be able to find me so please do and uh, there's a donate page on my Ozan.Foundation and we could really do with all the help we Mm. could get thank you you are doing profound work Jane and it's been a a real honour to share a conversation it's a pleasure thank you so much